Well, as I mentioned before, we are turning to Psalm 88 today in our series through the Psalter. Um, Almost 30 years ago, I took a Psalms elective when I was in seminary. Yes, I'm that old. Uh, My Hebrew professor, Mark Furtado, um, at RTS, he's now at RTS Orlando, but this was in Westminster, California. And I still read his one-volume commentary on the Psalms. He has a brief one-page comment on each Psalm, and he's a a wonderful instructor and teacher and reader of the Psalms. I would commend it to you if you're looking for such a volume. But his opening words in his comment on Psalm 88 landed really hard for me. He writes, Darkness is my closest friend. These are the final words in this darkest of all laments. These have been... My words. Professor Furtado, I suppose I might call him Mark if I saw him today somewhere other than Facebook, was not only my professor. He was also uh, the leader of a student prayer group. A handful of seminary students who instead of chapel one day a week, instead met together for prayer. And when I read these words from Mark Furtado, that these have been my words, it brought to mind immediately... Some of the trials he shared with us in that time of prayer. Some of the burdens he privileged us Christian brothers and sisters to share with him. To take to the Lord to prayer for him. Trials of body and trials of soul. I know. I know what he means when he wrote that these words have been my words. I'm sure, brothers and sisters, that they have been your words as well. Let us let these words... As I read them here now, wash over us today, and may the Spirit give us ears to hear them to our comfort. So let's rise for the reading of Psalm 88. Psalm 88, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a master of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed raise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. 
You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Join me now in our prayer for illumination found in our worship bulletins. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 39 through 44. You can find it on page 884 if you're using your pew Bibles. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Please join me in the prayer for illumination printed in your bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Well, there's an outline in our uh, worship bulletin, which I commend to you at this time. Um, it runs roughly like this. First, the prayer of lament, hope, despairs, and yet despair hopes. The second point is the final darkness of the grave. And the third point is isolation, the greatest grief. My title this morning is, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. That is, as many of you know, the opening line of Simon and Garfunkel's song, The Sound of Silence. The song was written by Paul Simon when he was only 21 years old. It's interesting, his latest album is called Seven Psalms. Um, They aren't very Christian psalms, but it's worth listening to. I have no reason to believe that Simon was alluding to the closing verses of Psalm 88, that my companions have become darkness. Darkness is a key theme mentioned three times. And the psalm is known uh, in the words of my professor, Mark Futado, as the darkest of all laments. Death is mentioned either directly or indirectly in almost half the verses of this psalm. Sheol, pit, dead, grave, regions dark and deep, departed, abandoned, perishing, the land of forgetfulness, close to death. And the meaning of the closing line is ambiguous, or perhaps more accurately, as good poetry is, is open-ended to many interpretations. Have the beloved acquaintances in their abandonment become a dark force in the singer's life? My former companions are now darkness to me. Is that what he's saying? 
Or perhaps he has been abandoned by every last one of his human friends. And darkness, the darkness of his heart, is his only companion. A singular sense is possible. Darkness is my only companion. Thanks to the magic of Wikipedia, I went back and looked at Paul Simon's reflections on this song. And he said that uh, the song was written in his bathroom. Where he used to turn off the lights to better concentrate on his music. Quote, the main thing about playing the guitar, though, was that I was able to sit by myself and to play and to dream. And I was always happy doing that. I used to go off in the bathroom because the bathroom had tiles, so it was a slight echo chamber. And I'd turn on the faucet so the water would run. I like that sound. It's very soothing to me. And I'd play in the dark. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Psalm 88 is a prayer of lament, a cry of a suffering child of God. And its reputation as the darkest psalm comes from the fact that it departs from the standard biblical pattern of lament. Other psalms of lament, we've read some today, Psalm 22, Psalm 102, and you might want to turn your Bibles, if you have them open, to Psalm 102, have similar expressions of suffering, similarly dark lines, but they put them in a different structure. So for instance, Psalm 102, Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you, incline your ear to me, the same phrase. But in verse 12, uh, Psalm 102 does what most uh, laments do, and it turns to a confident, more hopeful confession. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in His glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. You see, the lamenter, the lamentee, lamenter, is is confident and hopeful that God is listening. And finally, the prayer of the lament provides a basis for confession. Down in verse 18 of Psalm 1-2, and praise. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that people yet to be created may praise the Lord. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die. The psalmist, almost always in lament, looks at his condition as an opportunity for God's glory. He will come and save. I know he will. And in the future... As Psalm 22 closes, they will praise God for the righteousness He has accomplished. Thanksgiving and gratitude. But Psalm 88 is different, and hence its dark reputation. Though there are a few silver linings, as I'll mention, among the clouds, there's no explicit confidence. There's no explicit request for salvation. He doesn't even ask to be healed. There's no praise, there's no thanksgiving, and there is no account of deliverance. It goes down, 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 and then it stays there. My only friend is darkness. Now, before you protest, in the center of the psalm, and we'll come back to this, well, first of all, he does cry out to the God of my salvation, so there's that. And in the center of the psalm, but almost by a negative, a via negativa, he does say these things, right? Do you work wonders for the dead? Rhetorical question. Do you, the departed raise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? You see, he's saying all these great things about God aren't there in the place of the dead. And so Psalm 88 is the closest thing in the Bible to a hopeless prayer. 
And this is very important for us to recognize today. It's a very, it contains a very valuable lesson to us. And so um, I, I want to turn now to the first point of, of my outline. The prayer of lament. Hope despairs and yet despair hopes. And before I, I start on that, just note, there is an entire book of lamentations, right? Jeremiah's lamentations. And in Jeremiah's lamentations, we see the pattern of deliverance and restoration and praise. But it's also something that I would commend to your reading and study this week. So I'm going to do something a little bit differently today and reverse the order. And I'm going to begin with a word of application. The first thing I want to say about Psalm 88 is one lesson that we should learn. Biblical prayers are given to us as a part of inspired scripture to teach us that it is appropriate to pray a lament to God when we are suffering. It is appropriate. It's okay. It is pious to call out to God with an honest voice. And Psalm 88 in particular teaches us that our lamentations don't always have to be hopeful. They don't have to be confident. We don't have to be positive or upbeat. Sometimes darkness is our only companion. And God doesn't want us to fake it when that's happening. God doesn't want us to lie to Him or to anyone else. Nor does He want us to hide our sorrow. He wants us to cry out to Him. He wants us to be honest with Him. So if you today are looking for a way you can grow in your faith after you hear this sermon, do this. Pray, pray to God, and be honest, and if necessary, and appropriate, lament. Now, big picture, what role do laments play in the Psalter in the Bible? The Hebrew title of the Psalter is Tehillim, the book of praises. In one sense, and I've said this many times, this is a misnomer, because there are far more lamentations than praises in the Psalter. If you went by counting each verse or counting each word, far more words are dark than light. In other words, the Psalter as a whole is teaching us the same lesson that lament and sorrow are an important port and an important port an important part of our prayer life. You could think of it as a worship diet. Remember the food pyramid, now largely discredited, put out by the USDA in 1992? Um, imagine a prayer pyramid, a worship pyramid, if you will. And the Psalter is telling us that the broad foundation, this is a good one, not a bad one, the broad foundation of this pyramid is lamentation, honesty. And at the top, at the peak, at the pinnacle, is praise. The Psalter is called a book of praises, not because it's full of praises, but because it teaches us how to praise the Lord. It teaches us how to move from lamentation to praise. It teaches us how to move from sorrow to joy. And why we can, ultimately, because our Messiah, the Lord's anointed, the blessed man of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, has done so on our behalf. Sadly, our biblical prayer pyramid, the recommended daily allowance of lamentation and confession and thanksgiving and adoration and praise, has become wickedly corrupted in the church in our age. Um, Not unlike the food pyramid, it has been twisted and abused by uh, market forces. Uh, Maybe even there are a few lobbyists involved. We are living as a result in a prayer and worship desert. Uh, I don't want to condemn any of the the participants in this economy of bad worship because it's almost universal and I'd condemn everyone. That's not my point. 
My point is that we live in an age of darkness in terms of our worship. Christian radio is full of music that's popular. And those popular songs, pop, Christian music, right? People don't like to lament. I mean, the blues is a tiny little niche genre, right? And popular music has to be happy. That's what we as Americans like. That's what sinners like. Because it helps us ignore how hard life is, how sinful we really are. Let's just paste it over, you know? Let's cover it up. The one great imperative of the marketplace that drives the top 40, top 20 of praise and worship music at megachurches is always be happy. If it were a Legos movie, it would be everything is awesome. We have a temptation. And so we need to acknowledge that. And the Psalter is a corrective to that. Now, Martin Luther, a great preacher and singer of the Psalms, knew something about the dark night of the soul. And this line from our outline, hope despairs and yet despair hopes, comes from him. He spoke of a time when his hope in a Savior despaired. And yet, he said, in his despair he hoped. Despair is a lack of hope. This is a classic marker of clinical depression. It's a driver of depression. When you lose hope, you stop wanting to do anything. You lose the power, the motive power, the energy to act. Depression and despair comes from a lack of love. A sense of being love, a lack of ability to love. If things are bad for you and you don't believe things will change, you don't think things can change, you despair of hope. And so the Psalms and the Bible are a model for us how to, how to despair without losing hope. And so I want to draw your attention to three things in this model. So my first point has three sub-points. And the three uh, ingredients in this healthy lamentation are consistency, honesty, and faith. Consistency, honesty, and faith. First, consistency. Um, Notice that Psalm 88 breaks down neatly into three stanzas. Now, this isn't the way it's broken down in our ESV Bibles, but there are three points. Verse 1, uh, verse 9b, the second half of verse 9, and verse 13, where the psalmist cries out to the Lord. The name Yahweh is in those verses. And each one of these stanzas has a time marker. Day and night, every day, in the morning. There's this intensification This intensification as the stanzas progress. Each stanza begins with a cry. I cry out, my prayer, I call upon you, I cry to you. Each stanza, as I said, has the covenantal name of the Lord, Yahweh. And each stanza also has a sort of location, a geographical marker. The prayer comes before God, up in heaven as it were. And then the second prayer is for Yahweh to come. And then the third prayer is for Yahweh to come and help. So there's this intensification as we move from the first to the second to the third stanza. And you see there's this consistency, day and night. The psalmist moves from the past tense in the first two stanzas to the present tense. I'm praying today, Lord, but I've brought this prayer to you many, many times before. Lament doesn't always turn around overnight for the believer. Sometimes God brings us to a difficult place and keeps us there for a while. It's not one and done. It needs to be a consistent part of our prayer diet. I've recently, last couple of years, influenced by pandemic and health and different things, started sort of a new regimen of supplements, you know, for a 50-year-old man. Um, And sometimes I take these supplements. I actually asked Father's Day or birthday for one of those little pill things, you know, for the whole week of pills, just to save time. It's kind of embarrassing. 
And uh, sometimes I go through that thing. I think, am I going to have to use this stupid thing every day of my life? Do I need to take this supplement every day of my life? Is that the kind of consistency that's required? Well, kind of. Right? The second point is honesty. Honesty. The language here is raw. Death is close. The grave draws nigh. There is no strength. It's like Lazarus laid out in the tomb. Feels like God remembers him no more. He's shut in, trapped, helpless, terrified. And perhaps most importantly, repeated in verse 8 and 18, and I'll come back to this in our third point of our outline, is abandonment. The sense of abandonment. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This reminds us of Lamentations chapter 3. Not only is Jeremiah abandoned, but he's now despised. I have become the laughingstock of all the peoples, the objects of their taunts all the day long. Not only does Psalm 88 tell us that raw is okay, that speaking from the heart is healthy. Not only speaking from the heart to God, but speaking from the heart to one another is healthy. But Psalm 88, remember, the Psalms, when we think about what they mean, we should think about, first and foremost, the greatest psalm singer that ever lived. Not Luciano Pavarotti, right? The greatest psalm singer that ever lived is Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. The Psalms are his psalms. And he alone sang them with full integrity and honesty. The Messiah was betrayed. David, there's a whole collection in the Psalter. When he's under attack from Absalom, his own son, who tried to dethrone him. What abandonment, what betrayal. And finally, the prayer of lamentation. So consistency and honesty. The prayer of lamentation must be a prayer of faith. You can almost get angry with God. Is there anger in these words? I don't know. You can almost get angry with God and be faithful. There may be even no confession, no praise, no thanksgiving in this psalm. But that doesn't mean there is no faith. Let's look at some of the ways. There's faith in Yahweh. He calls out to the covenantal name Yahweh. His name means merciful, loving, delighting in forgiveness. The act of prayer is always a concrete act of faith. You speak, you think words, you direct them to God, believing that He is there, that He can hear you. Calling on God acknowledges that he is present. Asking him to listen, to incline his ear, suggests belief that he can hear, even if you feel like he's not there. Despair hopes. Even in our despair, we have that hope of faith. There's also faith here in this psalm in salvation. The darkness of Psalm 88 comes in the fact that the psalmist doesn't even ask for deliverance. He doesn't, he doesn't ask for something from God. He just vents. Yet he still believes in deliverance. And we know that because he addresses the prayer to, O Lord, God of my salvation. My salvation. He doesn't just believe God saves people. He believes God saves and will save him. Heman, the Ezraite, our author, believes in God. He has a relationship with God. He believes that God saves and in his salvation. There is also faith here, not only in Yahweh's covenant name, not only in his salvation, but there is faith in God's power, in his ability. Brothers and sisters, proper theology matters. Proper doctrine can comfort us. The psalmist confesses God's sovereignty over his suffering. 
And this is what gives biblical lament such honesty and power. I have my fully marked up colorized version of Psalm 88 here. And I went through and I circled every time the psalmist was addressing God in the second person. You have put me in the depths of the pit. Your wrath lies on me. You overwhelm me. You've caused my companions. You've made me a horror. Why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath, your dreadful assaults, they surround me. They close in on me. Your wrath is attacking me. You have caused my beloved and friend to shun me. Brothers and sisters, it makes sense to pray to God in times of suffering because God is sovereign even over our suffering. Because he and he alone is able to do something about it. One commentator has suggested that this psalm would be a fitting prayer for Joseph in the pit, abandoned by his brothers. You remember the story? Joseph's my middle name, so I grew up in Catholic school as a child, uh, thinking of myself as the biblical Joseph in the, the coat of many colors, right? The coat that his brothers said was covered in blood, the blood of a lamb, as they threw him in a pit and sold him to slaves as a slave. And at the end of that story, isn't it beautiful? This is the heart and soul of the story, brothers and sisters. Do you get it? At the end of that story, his brothers are terrified because he's going to take vengeance. He's number two in Egypt. And he gets to throw them in the pit. But that's not what he says. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Have you ever thought about what that story, that story of Joseph from beginning to end, book ended by the pit and his deliverance and his forgiveness, what that meant to God's people, Israel, when they were in exile, when they were suffering like Ethan or Heman, the Ezraite? The Bible doesn't shrink from God's sovereignty over suffering. The world does today, but the Bible does not. The book of Job clearly portrays Satan coming before Job's heavenly father, his creator, and asking for permission to torment his servant. And God says, okay, just don't take his life. Okay, just don't touch his body. The psalmist feels that God is responsible for his suffering, even if he's not the direct cause. But he feels that way because it's true. God is responsible for everything. And if we don't affirm that, then we are not able to affirm that God is able to save us from every evil. To heal every harm. Well, God's providence, predestination, such a nasty teaching. Oh, oh, what a delightful teaching. God can save. God can take a valley of dry bones and turn them into new life. And because God is responsible, he's able to deliver us from everything. And perhaps, perhaps even death and the grave. Second point is really what I just talked about. The final darkness of the grave. The very darkness, the very hopelessness of Psalm 88 is its strength and power. Because if you can cry out to God, even from the very grave, even when you have sunk down into the pit, when you are like the slain that lie there, if you can believe there that God can hear you and save you from death, you can pray to Him in any circumstance. That's the comfort of a biblical lament. Psalm 88 is a profound lament because it speaks honestly about death. The great enemy, the final foe. Brothers and sisters, the fear of death 
drives so much of our fallen human psychology. All of that, that suppression and denial that there is a God that we see in the world, that there is a creator, comes from the fear of death. I have a personal theory. It won't be personal when I find out someone else had it first. But that a midlife crisis... You know, the prototypical man leaves his wife, gets a convertible, drives across the country, goes out to California. That the midlife crisis is what happens when men of my age lose their fathers. Because you know what? Now you're the man of the house, and you're the next one in line to die. And the one who's been your champion all your life is gone. They wake up, and we realize there's no one left, and just the grave staring in our face. The fear of death drives our culture of youth. The fear of death drives our entertainment. The fear of death drives billions of dollars of Botox and cosmetics and surgery. The fear of death is the power of pornography and our culture of sex and fertility. Heman the Ezraite gives us a biblical model by taking this fear of death to the Lord, the God of his salvation. And I'd want to uh, draw your attention in this context to the central stanza. I know I said there's an intensification and a building from stanza 1 to 2 to 3. But in addition to this linear structure, there's also a concentric structure. I know you thought I was abandoning my target metaphor. There's also a concentric structure. And in the center of this psalm is a powerful stanza. The third stanza, or rather the second stanza, speaks in general about death. It, instead of speaking in the first person, speaks of the dead, the departed, the grave, the darkness, the land of forgetfulness. One commentator calls this third sta- or second stanza, sorry, a theodicy of death. A theodicy of death. Sorry to use big words, but theodicy means uh, um, the problem of evil, a justification that there is a good God in the light of all the evil in the world. This means the psalmist is arguing with God about death. He is reasoning with God. He is calling God to the bar. God is in the dock, sort of like the book of Job, to dispute the propriety of the death of God's saints and of his children. URC pastor Robert Godfrey has a lovely eight-part series on Psalm 88. I commend it to your reading. Uh, If you enjoy reading things online, it's on the Heidel blog. Uh, You can search Robert Godfrey Psalm 88 on Google. And in part 7, he speaks of this central stanza. And he talks about the light, the light that reverses the darkness. He points to the six rhetorical questions that make up this central stanza. And he sees them in three pairs. There are two questions about wonders. Does the Lord work wonders for the dead? Are his wonders known in the darkness? There are two questions about worship. Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your righteousness known in the land of forgetfulness? And there are two questions about love. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? The whole of book three of the Psalter we've been going through now, we're drawing near to the close. Psalm 89 is the end of book three. Is full full of rhetorical questions. It's been getting darker and darker and darker from Psalm 73 when the psalmist says, I thought maybe my foot had slipped and I'd fallen. And it gets worse from there. Why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke? Have you rejected us forever? Has your love ceased? Are your promises at an end for all time? Have you forgotten? Are you angry? How long will you be angry forever? 
It goes on until in Psalm 89, the psalmist asks, Where's your former loving kindness, O Lord, which you swore to David in faithfulness? You made a promise, and now it's gone. The Psalter in book 3 is moving lower and lower and lower. And in one sense, remember how I talk about the center of each psalm. In one sense, in the, in the direction of humiliation and exaltation, Psalm 88 and 89, the end of book 3, is the nadir. We're getting to the pivot of the whole Psalter. Our lives, the lives of God's children, are full of rhetorical questions. And there is no easy answer. Theodicy is the believer's problem, not the atheist's problem. Because we believe in a good God who's made good promises. And we live in a broken world. If we run too swiftly to the life to come, to the resurrection, to God's higher purposes, to Joseph at the end of Genesis, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You know, we become Dr. Pangloss in Candide, right? This is the best of all possible worlds. Isn't it great to believe in a sovereign God? But the pain today is real. My son is really in a coma. My daughter is really in the ICU. The cancer is really metastatic. The dementia is not reversible. The pain is real. I know why my friend Robert wrote this series on Psalm 88, because he lost his sister a few years ago at a young age with two young sons. She was a friend of mine in seminary. And so he writes these questions. And he he writes these questions. And he says, does the Lord work wonders for the dead? Are his wonders known in, in the darkness? And the answer is no, right? No. There's no wonder in the grave. It's horrible. Jesus weeps at the grave. But when Jesus is in the grave, the answer is yes and yes. He does work wonders. Do the departed arise to praise him? Is his righteousness known in the land of forgetfulness? Again, for us sinners, no. The answer is no. The rhetorical answer to all these questions is no. That's their power. But for Jesus, the answer is yes. His righteousness is remembered in the grave. Death can't hold him. Is God's steadfast love declared in the grave? And Robert closes his article. He says, then at the end of Matthew's gospel, the risen Savior would make a promise to his disciples. And in the final words of Matthew 28, we are told, I am with you always to the end of the age. Beloved, nothing can destroy the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from him. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. As the communion of saints and in our individual lives, He is always with us. Is God's loving kindness declared in the grave? Is His faithfulness in Abaddon? Amen and amen. Death no longer has dominion over Him, Paul writes in Romans 6, 19. And this brings us to our third and final point, isolation as the greatest grief Darkness is my closest friend. These have been my words. Have they been yours? Both the first and the third standards repeat this refrain. You have have caused my companions to shun me. You have caused my beloved and friend to shun me. Isolation. The psalmist is not only separated from those whom he loves, he has become a horror to them. Despicable. 
And this isolation is alluded in our New Testament passage in Luke 23. You can't really pick it out in the English of the verse, but if you read the Greek of Luke 23 and the Greek of Psalm 88, there's an allusion here to the acquaintance who is now drawing far away and standing at a distance. In the moment where Christ showed his greatest love, his closest commandments despised him the most. Why is it? That in the wealthiest, most technologically advanced civilization in all of human history, deaths of despair are leading causes of death and climbing. Why is it that the CDC considers loneliness one of the leading risk factors for mortality? Perhaps Paul Simon was penning a commentary on Psalm 88 when he wrote The Sound of Silence. Perhaps he was. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again because of vision softly creeping. Left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. In restless dreams, I walked alone. Narrow streets. Neath the halo of a street lamp, I turned my collar to the cold and damp. My eyes were stabbed by the flash of a neon light. He's talking about isolation in a city. The isolation of living with millions of other strangers. And in the naked light I saw 10,000 people, maybe more, people talking without speaking. Probably had earbuds in. People hearing without listening. People writing songs that voices never shared. And no one dared disturb the sound of silence. Here comes the voice of the prophet. Fools, said I, you do not know that silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. But my words, like silent raindrops fell and echoed in the wells of silence. And the people bowed and prayed to the neon God they'd made. And the sign flashed out its warning in the words that it was forming. And the sign said, the words of the prophets are written on subway walls and tenement halls and whispered in the sound of silence. Some prophetic words in that song, written 60 years ago. 10 million people, maybe more, all connected on social media, talking without speaking, hearing without listening, silence growing like a cancer in our midst. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. That's what the light that's shown in the darkness, the eternal word says to us. Hear the good news that you are not alone in the dark. The power of the gospel does not deny that our isolation is deadly or that it is real. Rather, the power of the gospel holds forth the love of Jesus Christ as the most isolated human being that ever lived. Utterly forsaken by his father, betrayed by an intimate friend, abandoned by all his followers in his hour of need. Darkness was Jesus' closest friend in the grave. And he was utterly alone so he could share the depths of human hell and deliver us from it. No Christian, no believer will ever be alone, even in the grave. The power of the gospel also holds forth Jesus in his word and his arms as an intimate friend who will never leave his people alone. I'm with you always to the end of the age. He sends his spirit to dwell in our hearts. He healed when he was on earth with a touch. And he still touches us through his people, through his church. And he unites us to himself by faith, to his body, to this communion of saints. And in the church, silence shall not grow like a cancer. Hear my words. 
Take my arms. Jesus' words, Jesus' arms are present here in the power of his love. Brothers and sisters, in your darkest moments, you're not alone. We are never alone. And here's another practical application for this song. Don't be silent. Don't be silent in your prayer life. Cry out to God. Don't be silent in the church. Know that there's always someone ready to listen, ready to hear you. There are raw arms ready to embrace you. In the church, the love of Christ is manifest. Not perfectly, not without its faults, but reliably and concretely. While our hope may sometimes despair, our despair will always have hope. Not only in the future, not only in the resurrection, but here right now. Death has no dominion over us. Let's pray. Merciful God, what a strange celebration, what a strange feast laid forth on this table. The death of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the broken body, the poured forth blood for our comfort and for our peace. We thank you, dear Jesus, for singing this psalm for us, for embodying it in the grave that we might be delivered from the grave. We thank you, dear Jesus, for the gospel of a new creation, new life, for health, for healing, in sickness and sorrow and death. We thank you, dear Jesus, for your spirit that has brought us to saving faith through the new birth. And we pray that you would use your words and your supper, your sacrament, to seal and strengthen and grow our faith and comfort us in our sin and affliction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.